Our reading of God's holy word this morning is taken from the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 3. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For, in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before God, night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you in and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Aletheia was still a baby and we were returning to Kentucky from Louisiana. It was a somewhat precipitous departure. We had to get out of Dodge quickly. And so we returned to Richmond, Kentucky, without a whole lot of preparation work being laid. Preparation like, where are we going to live? That sort of thing. Uh, minor details like that. It turns out, though, that just in happenstance, my father, for reasons I'd not like to go into, had already contracted an apartment with EKU. He was going to rent an apartment, already had it under connection. He decided to let us have it since we were coming back so quickly. Um, there was only just one problem with it, and that was... It was an apartment that was scheduled for demolition. It was going to be destroyed in a year. So we could move in. We could live there for a year. We could kind of get our feet under us, but don't feel at home because it's going to go down. And there was a, another slight difficulty with the apartment, and that is uh, it's EKU, they're your landlord, and you have to call EKU if anything needs repairing, but they know they're going to blow it up, and so they're not going to come repair nothing. And so while we lived there, you know, we had a door fall out of its 
frame with the frame, the whole thing fell out. The response was, dude, we're not going to fix it. We're going to blow it up. We had a, we had a migratory pattern of ants that would come under the front door and go out the back door. I have no idea why they did it. But again, EKU's answer was, we'll consider them pets and find somewhere else to live. So we were living in this apartment that we knew had the stamp of death on it. It was temporary. It wasn't permanent in any way. If we treated the apartment as this is where we're going to put roots down, that would be absolutely insane. It was all going to burn. Now, there was stuff in the apartment that hopefully wasn't. That was myself, my pets, my family, my possessions. That would be somewhere. But this building wasn't going to be. Well, there was a practical lesson in that setup for me. Uh, It reminded me of what the Apostle John admonished us with in the second chapter of 1 John. Specifically, First uh, John two fifteen to seventeen. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Don't love the world. There are two reasons for that. One, John says everything in the world, practically speaking, is tainted with sin to some degree. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, pride of life, uh, it all fits in somehow, and it's going to burn. That's the other reason. The world is passing away. It's going to come to a point where it passed away. You don't want to lay down roots in something that is going to get absolutely broken to its base atoms and recreated. Uh, It's going completely away. So don't love the world. You ain't at home. You aren't staying here. And it's not staying here. They're going to blow it up. But... In teaching us not to love the world, John is assuming we are going to love. We have the capacity for love. We are given to love. And John says, don't love those things which are ultimately tainted with sin. Don't love those things which are not going to be eternal. That's, that's foolishness. That, that's madness. Don't do that. But that would suggest what you should love is the flip side of that. That which is going to be delivered from sin, that which is going to be perfected, and that which is going to be eternal. You do love. You're expected to love. So love those things. Well, what are those things? If we were to survey scripture from front to back we would find three things that match that criteria. But uh, conveniently, there is a passage (coughs) from 1 Peter that has all three of them kind of wrapped around each other. It is specifically 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22 through 25, 
And there, the Apostle Peter writes this. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which, by the gospel, was preached to you. So Peter gives us a kind of handy summary of those things that are imperishable. They're not going to be destroyed. They're going to last. The people of God, you have been reborn imperishable. Peter specifically uses the concept of love. He says, uh, love one another fervently as a command. And the people of God are going to last because they have been given this imperishable nature, and it's specifically by, quote, the word of God. The word of God has been used to transform them, and Peter goes on at length at that point, quoting uh, the Psalms, uh, the word of God is going to last forever. Uh, let Renaissance philosophers mock and belittle and declare that a generation after their death, no one will have a Bible. Uh, it will turn out that a hundred years after their death, their home will be being used to print Bibles. True story, actually. Uh, the word of God is going to last forever. The people of God are going to last forever. And the third thing on our list is God. It is God's nature they are given. It, the, the seed of God makes them imperishable. The word of God is God's tool to make them imperishable, and God is imperishable. He isn't going to disappear. God is. Jehovah means I am. He's not I was, I will be. It's He's eternal. So when we consider what we should love, if it's not the things of the world that are passing away, we really only come up with these three things. You've got God the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he's not passing away. You've got uh, the Word of God. It's not going anywhere. The message that is in the Word of God will last for eternity. It will stand forever. And the people of God, because the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the eternals. The reason why I go into this as a fairly long introduction is because as the Apostle Paul brings this section of this fairly brief letter to a close, he's working with these three things. If you look at this last chapter, he's working with God. He's working with the Word of God. And he is, at length, working with the concept of the people of God. And it is a very loving chapter. So uh, we're watching him obey this admonition. 
Don't love the things of the world which are passing away. Love the things that are going to last, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and the people of God. Taking them in reverse order, let us look at our chapter and see how the Apostle is specifically doing that. Our chapter break is somewhat unfortunate. Uh, whenever you see a, a sentence begin with the word therefore, you're on a moving train. Therefore means because, and so that references what came before. And so the fact the chapter's there kind of interrupts the thought. Uh, what is it there for, this therefore? Well, it's the verse right before it, which says, talking about the people of God, for you are our glory and joy. That's quite a statement. It, it really is. Paul, what is your glory? When, when you want people to think about what your life has accomplished, because that's really kind of the sphere of what the word glory means, uh, what do you want them to think about? Paul says, these believers, I'm called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. I do my ministry in those who are called to be saints. They are my glory. Paul, what makes you happy in the world? What, what really gives you joy? Not just a fleeting happiness, but, but what causes you to wellspring? Paul points at the believers and he says, you are my joy. And then the chapter starts, therefore. So that's about as loving as it can get without using the term um, you love what is your glory and your joy. And Paul says to the Thessalonians, that's you. Um, this isn't exactly the first time this theme has come up in Scripture. We came into our worship singing Psalm 14. In Psalm 14, you have the human race, which is completely corrupt and vile, and then you're told that these wicked people, the human race, is devouring my people. You are devouring my people like bread, except you've made the human race the focus here. So who is my people if it's not the human race? Well, the Hebrew is the sons of Adam. It's a covenantal way of saying those who are in Adam, the psalmist people are not in Adam. They are in somebody else. They are covenantally in God's promises. And so, congratulations, according to Psalm 14, you're not a human being, you're something else. Uh, you're in Jesus Christ, you're a different people, and the world devours them. But then we moved on to Psalm 16, and Psalm 16 began with, uh, Lord, you are my only good, I find everything good in you, you are my great joy. Oh, and as for the saints that are in the earth, they are my great delight. And you might ask, well, how can the psalmist say that? Because if he says, the Lord is my delight, uh, my joy, my everything, well, where do the saints fit in? Well, I ask you, parents, how would you feel if somebody came over and said, you know, I absolutely adore you. You are the light of my life. I absolutely hate your kids. How are you going to respond? God is connected to his family. And so if you adore God and find your joy in him, 
you're going to do that with his family. The saints that are in the earth, those who have been set apart to the Lord, uh, they are all my delight because they belong to God. They're part of my heritage. Well, Paul is speaking that. He is saying, you are my joy, my delight. Um, you are so important to me, I am willing to split the party. Uh, I know if I numbered the number of gamers in this room, it would be in the single digits. It might come down to one. It might come down to me. But there is a, there is a proverb among gamers, never split the party. Uh, it's dangerous. You know, if you've ever watched uh, action TV, it's always a bad idea to send one of your people off on their own because they're going to go get captured or something. Uh, never split the party. But Paul begins the chapter by saying, I was so concerned about you because you are my, my glory and my joy. And I heard about how the people of the world were devouring you, like in Psalm 14, that I just couldn't stand it. And so we decided to be left alone and we sent Timothy back to you. They didn't really want to do that. We would have liked to have kept the fellowship of our own. We actually are undergoing afflictions too, if you notice the passage. Paul says, in my afflictions and sufferings. But you were so valuable to us, we're sending Timothy back, we're splitting the party, uh, to put it in Paul's own words, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you concerning your faith. And in fact, this idea of you were so important to me, I couldn't endure it. It comes up again in verse five. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I said to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. The reference to the tempter, by the way, is kind of significant. Back in chapter two, Paul said, we wanted to come to you again and again, but somebody was keeping it from happening. That somebody was Satan. He was active and he was attempting to harm the church of God. He is active. He does want to harm the church of God. Uh, Paul is very aware the enemy is on the move, and Satan was keeping him from going to Thessalonica. Most likely, Satan had something going on in Thessalonica. And so Paul wanted to make sure that wasn't successful, that these would be converted people, that the Spirit of God would actually bring them to Christ it was deeply on his heart because the saints are his delight. Um, his life is oriented in doing the will of Christ in the form of a apostle. Uh, he lives through them, but in a very good way. If you are a parent, you really shouldn't live through your children. That's a burden on them. You know, you get the 40-year-old guy who never did well in sports, but he wants to have a kid so he can do well in sports through John. That's a terrible way to live through your kids. But in another sense, you pour your life into your kids. You really do, right? I mean, if you are a parent, you know what I'm talking about. And honestly, if you're not a parent, 
you're going to know what I'm talking about. That's the way parenting is done. You don't parent for yourself. It doesn't happen. You are pouring your life into somebody else and you are draining your life into them. But it's worth it because you are watching God use your efforts, use your obedience to him in this matter, uh, bringing forth new life, bringing forth uh, bubbly discipleship, bringing forth the joys of new life in Christ in the child. You're willing to do that. And in fact, if you truly, truly are a good parent, you feel their every hurt and you feel their every joy because honestly, their life is yours. Well, Paul uses that language. He says, uh, therefore, brethren, uh, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. We found out that God was establishing you, and he even puts it as, for now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. I know what that's like. If you've ever discipled anybody and you really care, you know what that's like. Um, elsewhere, Paul says, you know, I feel all the pains of all the churches. Who is not tempted and harmed and I don't burn myself? Uh, that's actually healthy. That's the way a Christian leader should feel. That's the way a discipler should feel. That's the way a parent should feel. This is my delight. Um, he is thankful to God for them. He says, for what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God. I've, I've hit this hammer many times, but there is no Christian who is converted, a true Christian, who God didn't make and God alone. It is impossible for human beings to make Christians. It is possible for them to make disciples but the two are not the same if you're using the term Christian as a converted person. Uh, technically, the New Testament uses disciple and Christian synonymously, but we don't. We use the term Christian for a converted person. Um, if there's anybody in your life who is converted and you are going to live with eternally, uh, they're a gift of God to you. And if that isn't felt as an amazing gift, just try some time living in a situation where there's not a lot around. Uh, Mark and Alethea are moving to Kentucky, as you know. Um, they've been part of a conservative, healthy Christian church. You know, uh, not our tradition, but really kind of close. And that church has really ministered to them and fed them. I'm grateful to them. But the way things worked out, uh, Mark and Alethea just weren't able through the week to be around any believers. It was always on the Lord's Day, but that was it. And one of the things that is bringing them to Kentucky is we can't do that anymore. We, we need uh, other believers. We, we need the gift of God uh, that is other believers. Try living without them. Um, 
Paul is grateful, and he is not grateful to them. He is grateful to the God who made them. We are grateful to God. And not only is he grateful to God for what the grace of God has done, he is grateful to God for what God is doing but is not yet finished with. There is a line in here. I mean, all of this is warm fuzzies. All of this is really emotional. Um, you know, given who I am, this is even kind of an uncomfortable passage to preach on because, you know, I'm, I'm not huggy, but this passage really kind of is. But nevertheless, Paul does sneak in a phrase in here. He says, um, night and day, we're praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. So Paul is saying, you're a gift of God to me. I rejoice in you. You are my glory. You are my joy. Uh, you are uh, what I do. You're also not finished yet. In fact, some of you are definitely a work in progress. And we're going to see that as we get past here. When we get into chapter four and five, there's a number of deficiencies in this Christian community. And deficiencies in a Christian community are deficiencies in Christians who are in the community. They are things that believers need to repent of. And we're going to find there's a number here. Paul says, I really want to come and I want to perfect what is lacking in your faith. But even though you are not yet what you should be, you are not yet what I want you to be. I am thankful to God for what you are this very moment. Because, again, the one who is the author of your faith is also the finisher of your faith. We are not of such a philosophy that says God saves dead men, brings them to life, and then says, go for it. The rest of it is yours. Thanks be to God, it doesn't work that way. God brings dead men to life, and then he sanctifies them and builds them and matures them. And um, it's sovereignly a work of God, even though he uses means. God uses us to disciple people. God uses us to preach the word. And yet, from the perspective of God's throne, there is nothing good in this world in any way except but it is the overt act of God. It's just, I mean, that's Bible, and that's true. If left to flesh, nothing good ever happens. But God is great, but Paul is grateful to God for what has happened and what is going to happen. You are not yet finished, but uh, I'll come alongside of you, and uh, by God's grace, I'll be the tool in his hand to complete what's lacking in your faith. Let me, let me ask you a question. Someone comes to New Hope Reformed Church, and they're obviously pretty sharp. They're smart people, and they're fairly winsome. But as you're talking to them before service begins, you realize that, you know, they, they know a little bit about God, but they literally know nothing about Jesus Christ. They are religious people. They have come to worship here on the Lord's Day. But you talk to them and you say, yeah, you know, we're a community that's in covenant with Jesus Christ. And they say, who? How would you respond 
if that happened here? My guess is you would come and tell me, we have a weirdo. You wouldn't be wrong. That would be a very weird situation. As a pastor, I would definitely go talk to them. I would hope that you would talk with them. But uh, as weird as that situation sounds, you actually have that happening in the New Testament. You have it happening in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 18 and verse 24 through 28, there are Christian disciples by the name of uh, Aquila and Priscilla, and they run into somebody just like that. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, so he's, you know, he's got some things going on, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So in the work of God, Apollos is only up to John the Baptist. He doesn't even know any of the rest of the stuff that happened. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They didn't leave him be. They didn't say, this isn't my job. They recognized this is a providential gift to them, to disciple. But how many modern-day evangelicals would take up this challenge? You know, this is a religious weirdo. This is somebody, I don't know, I just don't want to get messed up in this. Well, Aquila and Priscilla perceived someone who needed discipling. And they took him aside. They didn't rebuke him. He was accurate up to where he was. And they explained the word of God to him more accurately. They explained it to him. Um, it suggests a process. It suggests something that isn't going to be a one-time event. Apollos became the disciple of Aquila and Priscilla. And it took time. I have no idea how long. But it worked. God was pleased to make Apollos the Apollos we would come to know from the New Testament to the point where some scholars think he wrote Hebrews. I don't, but some scholars do. And he is an eloquent man who wants to serve the Lord. His heart's in the right place. He just needed discipleship. He needed to be built. He needed for somebody to be the tool of God in the hand of God to patiently, lovingly disciple him, and Apollos becomes a great success story. Actually, the church at Thessalonica is a great success story. It will last up until the 20th century. Uh, this church will come to an end uh, due to political reasons uh, 2,000 years later. And it won't be real healthy by the time it gets there. It will be, you know, Eastern Orthodox, that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, 2,000-year run ain't bad. That's impressive. Paul says, your faith ain't what it's going to be. I'm going to supply what's lacking in your faith. But I am extremely, extremely grateful to God for you. And I am seeking your growth. 
As the passage comes to an end, Paul pronounces a blessing over them, which is a form of prayer. Um, and it's specifically a growth in love. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. Uh, as you know, love biblically has a form. If you go to 1 John and you ask the Apostle John, what does love look like? He will tell you, you love your brothers if you obey God's commandments. In 2 John, he'll tell you, you love God if you love if you love him by obeying his commandments. You know, love is not just this nebulous thing. It's got a, a format. But love is the essence of Christian ethic. The commandments are the form of that ethic. But the root of that ethic is faith. The early church defined the whole Christian life in Galatians 5.6, which reads, faith works by love, which means that faith produces love. Love is the essence of our response to God. Love is the essence of what we do in the world. And Paul sought God in prayer that you would grow in love. And if you do, if you grow in love for one another, and there's this theme of one another all the way through this epistle, with and everybody else added afterwards, um, this will, quote, establish your heart blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I have a feeling that if I truly, truly unpack that, it would be its own sermon. And I'm not prepared to do that. I haven't done all the study that would be required. But Paul is taking us to the last day where on the day of judgment, you're not just standing before the Father and your life being read out of some book. The Father is literally unpacking your heart. He is going internal. He is looking at everything that you have hid from everybody and even yourself. He is laying bare what actually is of you. The more I picture this, the more uncomfortable I become. But Paul says, I am blessing you for prayer that God would cause you to grow in love, obeying his commandments towards God and towards your neighbor. Uh, and if you do that, if God answers my prayer and he does that, when God opens up your heart on the last day and lays it bare and looks at absolutely everything and you cannot hide or dissemble anything from him, it's going to be okay. It's going to be a blessing. There will be no need for shame. So this is actually very positive. I mean, however deep you go into it, Paul is saying, as the Lord sanctifies, he will bring to completion. On the last day, your heart will be laying there before him, and it will be something that God will revel in. And he will say, this is good. This is what I wanted it to be. I can't think of any more loving prayer for anyone.
Paul wants to be with them. He prays, may God our Father himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, let me finally come. Uh, the devil's trying to keep us out. The only place we can turn to is God. He's our only hope. But God's more powerful than the devil, and I want to be with my family. That's loving. But then there are two other things that are eternal. The word of God and God. And they do, in fact, show up in this passage, too. The word of God has begun a chapter before. In chapter 2 and verse 13, Paul has said, For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So Paul says, we came as apostles, we spoke from Christ. You could have received it as, this is a weird teaching, but it's nothing but men's words. You didn't do that because God made you know it's the word of God. It had the ring of sincerity. You couldn't miss it because God made that happen. Here in this chapter, Paul brings forth a little bit of what that word of God spoken to them entailed. It's not the totality by any means, but he does bring up something that was word of God that he spoke and they heard was word of God. That's in verse two through four. We sent Timothy to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that when that we are appointed to this. Actually, the term is predestined. It's one of the 16 places where the term predestined is used in the New Testament. We are appointed, we are predestined to this. For in fact, we told you before, when we were with you, that we would suffer tribulation, just as it happened, and as you know. Um, there is nothing that anybody has that God didn't give them. So you can't really be proud of what you have because God gave it. You didn't create it. But with that caveat in mind, I have to state I am really very grateful that God has given me the Reformed faith. Be, for this reason, as well as many, but in in this context, uh, the Reformed faith has always taught me God did not save you to deliver you from problems. The average evangelical is taught that over and over again. From the very moment they're told God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, God does love you. And if you are elect, God has a wonderful plan for your life. But that may include imprisonment. It may include stoning. It may include cancer. It may include economic bankruptcy. It may include your family disowning you. It may include uh, fill in the blank. Paul says, we spoke the word of God to you, and the word of God is eternal, and God made you realize it was the word of God, and part of it was you are predestined for tribulation. There was nothing in Paul's message that said, come to Jesus and your life 
from the point of view of an unbeliever, is just going to become puppies and kittens and flowers. Instead, he says, you are predestined to battle and suffering. Uh, Elsewhere, when he writes to the church at Philippi, he even puts a positive spin on it. This is Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29. For to you, it has been granted on behalf of Christ. So, God looked at you and said, I'm going to give you something, a blessing. I'm going to entrust you with something. It's granted to you. For to you, it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, which has been granted to you, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Are you reviled by the world? You are blessed. Are you struggling in the grace of God in such a way that at the end of it, men will see that God has been gracious to you? You are blessed. I don't know where I would be if I stood in a religious tradition that said, God will always bless you the way the world counts blessing. Your problems will be solved. Uh, You're not going to struggle. It's going to be great. That doesn't happen. God doesn't even intend that to happen. God sanctifies us through what he brings into our life. God, underneath is the everlasting arms, he holds us through what he brings into our life. God is at work in every detail of our life. And the apostle had to tell the believers, now the word of God is, uh, you're going to be afflicted. But God will be glorified. I pointed out already that absolutely every chapter in 1 Thessalonians ends with Jesus Christ is returning and is going to conquer the world. Jesus Christ is coming back and we will be blessed. There is incredible hope, but you are predestined for tribulation as that hope comes. Uh, The apostle loves the word of God and is actually even the messenger of it to the point where he does not hide the hard stuff. There was an article this week in, of all places, the magazine Salon. If you know anything about Salon, Salon is about just slightly to the left of Lenin as far as its political outlook. It is absolutely on the left. And this is a liberal article, and not everything that showed up in the article uh, was factual. They made some factual errors, but they were not really on the direct point of the article. The direct point of the article was an examination of a certain translation that had been made by evangelicals. And I ain't going to mention it because you'll accuse me of being biased. I am biased, but I'm not going to mention it. Um, it's a it's a translation that a huge amount of evangelicals use. It's their main Bible. It was translated was revised from another translation, one of the goals of the revision was to show that there was a patriarchal structure in the church and in family, that fathers are heads of households, that sort of thing. It was specifically revised to bring that out. And in that, it did do that. And it's accurate in doing that. But this article pointed out, yeah, they did that, but they don't like being accurate in a lot of other things. 
And again, these are liberals. These are people who hate us. But nevertheless, if they have an accurate picture, we better listen. They went through this translation. They said, what's it do with slavery? Well, when you go through this translation and look at slavery, the language has been totally watered down. They made their point blisteringly that it was translated so that the average 21st century American would not react to slavery. And then there was the, oh yes, the other one was, how does the passage, how does this translation work with the concept of the Jews, in quote, like I preached last week? Well, you go through this translation, everywhere it says the Jews, it's been changed to the religious leaders or something like that. It's specifically been designed to hide from the world those things the world would say, okay, I don't know if I can handle that or not. Uh, I find that mean. So is it an accurate translation? The Apostle Paul came into the city of Thessalonica and said, I have the word of God for you. You are going to be persecuted. That's not making the gospel palatable. That's not sugarcoating it. That is giving the entire counsel of God to the people of God because everything God says is for the good of the people of God. Even those things the people of God are going to say, I don't particularly like that. God's word is God's grace. And when the apostle brought the word, he loved the eternal word. He didn't hide it. He didn't sugarcoat it. He presented it in truth. And that is what we should do if we love the word of God. And then, of course, there is the last eternal. And that is God himself. But it's hard uh, to, to not feel that we've already covered this one because look through the passage. Where does the apostle place every good thing? He places it in God. Uh, the apostle loves God. He's thankful to God for the people of God. He bears God's word. Uh, he trusts God for the future. He says, if I'm going to get to Thessalonica, God's going to provide it. By the way, that is a view of God that he is very active in the world and doing things. We Reformed Christians are as supernaturally minded as any Pentecostal. In fact, really, we ought to be more so. The Apostle Paul says there was a real devil who honestly kept me from getting to a real city. And God will knock him out of the way. But there is nothing here but the apostle looks to God and says, God is my hope. God is my trust. God is where I'm expecting all good things to come from. It's the opposite of that cynicism we looked at in Bible study this morning. We looked at Joel chapter 1 and we saw Joel described a bleak situation. But the only sense of hope in the whole chapter was, to you, O Lord, I turn. The apostle loves the eternal things. The world is going to burn. But if you want to work with things that you will have forever, 
if you want to value them, if you want to, if you want to lay aside an account of things that will count forever, then your account must be made of the people of God, the word of God, and God. Because those are the only things you will have forever. 